Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, March 26th, and we're talking about the latest Fed meeting. I'm your host, Michael Douglas, and I'm joined by Matt Frankel. So, Matt, as you noted in an article, and we're using that as part of our discussion today, the fact that the Fed raised rates this last meeting wasn't actually the biggest piece of news out of the meeting. No, it actually wasn't too surprising at all. Um, their market was already pricing in about a 95% chance that this rate hike would happen. Um, and kind of recent tailwinds such as tax reform and other positive economic news has you know, made it almost a certainty. So this may as well have actually happened before it happened. The good <laughs> news, rather, was the um, kind of the Fed's forecast. The Fed's getting a little more confident about the economy, I guess we'd say. We'll get into the actual numbers in a little bit. But the Fed's getting a little more confident about the economy and seeing rates in the future going a little higher than they had predicted last time. Yeah. So, so let's, this is kind of the big story. Yeah. And let's break that down piece by piece. So the Fed releases a document that is known as the dot plot four times each year. And that basically contains members' projections of where rates are headed over the past few years, basically so that things get priced in, right? So the fact that the market had priced that 95% chance of a Fed rate increase was in large part because of a past dot plot. But let's talk about this one because things changed. Yeah. um, Dot plot is generally a projection of the next three years of interest rates and what the Fed sees happening over the long run. the Fed, contrary to popular belief, the Fed does not like to surprise the market. The Fed wants the market to kind of know where it's where it's going and where it sees things going. Um, this one, the numbers went up a little bit from last time. The previous dot plot, um, just to kind of give you some of the numbers, called for rates going to 2.1% this year, which is about where it's going. That's it, That hasn't changed much. Uh, 2019 target has gone up considerably from 2.7% to 2.9%. In interest rate terms, that's a big shift. And 2020 has risen from 3.1% to 3.4%. So this means that investors should expect rates to go a little higher than they were previously expecting over the next few years. Yeah, well, and I think the the big thing for folks thinking about just this year is that, you know, three to four, right? That or well, three to in between three to four, right? But but that definitely implies a Fed that is getting progressively more hawkish. Yeah, and it's also worth mentioning that the um, the members of the Fed tend to kind of gravitate toward the same rate. Like there's a lot of agreement on these dot plots. Most are within, you know, 50 basis points of each other. There's a few outliers. There's actually one this time that thinks rates are going to get to about 5% by 2020, which I actually found one of the more interesting points of the dot plot. Yeah. But generally speaking, all the dots are clustered around you know, a consensus interest rate, which is why the market prices in moves like the one that we just had so much. Right. And that, in a lot of ways, is a very good thing. I mean, so the, the problem with the dot plot, of course, is that it's a, it's a projection. It's a prediction. And there are weaknesses there. We'll get to that more in a minute. But it's a really good thing that 
the market to some extent has some expectations about things because frankly the market really really hates uncertainty and even if the the certainty is bad sometimes the market prefers that i think to an uncertain possibly good outcome so in this case it's a really good way for basically the fed to not cause a massive reaction every time it moves things but instead to kind of smooth out that volatility yeah definitely the whole point of the fed is to you know create stable financial markets so that's kind of the point of the dot plot. They don't want to surprise everybody. Right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about GDP and unemployment because the Fed basically broadly sees things getting better in both areas. And of course, this makes sense when you think about it from a, a, raising, a rising interest rates environment. So the Fed's going to raise interest rates if it believes that the economy is going to continue expanding and... Therefore, to basically control inflation, they're going to keep raising those interest rates to to ensure that the economy doesn't sort of expand at this sort of unsustainable rate. Yeah, the Fed's kind of purpose is to try to find a nice equilibrium in the market. Uh, there was a point in the early 1980s, for example, where interest rates were like 14 or 15 percent. And the, the Fed's kind of goal is to avoid situations like that from happening. Right. So when you see the economy growing faster than, you know, what they call their target, they'll try to, you know, interest rates, slow them down, slow down the rate at which they're increasing them or even reduce interest rates. But now the Fed is expecting GDP and employment, which are two of their biggest indicators, to be even better than expected in the coming years. Um, just for example, next year, uh, the Fed was originally projecting 2.1% GDP growth. Now that's up to 2.4%. Unemployment, um, <clears throat> they were previously projecting 3.9% next year. Now it's down to 36 I might be wrong about this, but I can't remember it getting to that level in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> it is certainly it is certainly very, very good news for the economy that the Fed certainly feels that way. But but let's let's also I mean, we're long-term investors, so let's also consider the fact that the Fed doesn't necessarily see this as a really long-term rate of expansion, right? The the Fed's dot plot certainly implies that they see some economic cooling off, let's say, post-2020. Right. Uh, Well, first of all, the Fed doesn't really see inflation getting out of control, as you might expect from GDP and unemployment numbers like that. I mean, that's better than what is known as full employment. Right. Um, so the, the Fed's expecting inflation to kind of hover around its 2% target, which is why I guess it, you know, it's kind of feeling so comfortable with the projected rate increases over time. And also why after 2020, the Fed's kind of expecting the economy to cool off just a little bit. Um, if you just, one kind of key thing to note from the dot plot They're expecting about 3.4% to be their target interest rate in 2020. And over the longer term, meaning beyond that, they're expecting about 2.8% to be the the kind of normal, the target. So they're expecting interest rates to kind of be reduced a little bit after 2020. Um, Now, nobody knows when exactly the economy is going to cool off. There are a thousand different variables that could cause GDP growth to slow down or unemployment to pop up. No one knows when it's going to happen. But the Fed kind of, given the information they have now, 
sees the economy heating up until about 2020 and then cooling off a little bit afterwards. Right. And again, lowering that interest rate implies a, a desire to make lending money a little bit easier, a.k.a. to stabilize, let's say, a, a, an economy that has cooled off a little bit. But but let's also talk about this from another perspective. I mean, when the Fed makes a, predi- a prediction, people listen. Understandably so. It's the Fed. <laughs> this is what they're saying, that they plan to sort of expect out of the economy. And a lot of market expectation is built into those into those predictions. But I I also feel the need to point out, so the New York Times published this lovely article in December of 2017, which I'm going to jokingly say it was ambiguously titled, it's quote, when the forecasters get it wrong, colon, always. Um, and, and just to quote the article briefly here, the consensus of leading economists has consistently missed big turns. They have not predicted a single United States recession since the Federal Reserve began keeping such records a half century ago. So when you think about that, people are human. People cannot predict the future. And frankly, it can be very difficult long term to kind of see where things are going. I mean, if you look at the history of the uh, federal funds rate, which is what the benchmark rate that the the Fed sets, it peaked in late 2007, right before the massive financial uh, recession that we have only you know somewhat recently gotten out of. And so it's worth pointing out here that predictions of the future are notoriously well inaccurate. Yeah, even in that situation, that in 2007 the Fed wasn't projecting a recession right around the corner. Right. Um, Had it been, it would have done some things. Right. Um, but the kind of the, the idea that the, the Fed's goal is to have enough room to lower interest rates when it needs to and raise interest rates when it needs to, which is a big priority of why they kind of want to get to that 3%-ish range over the long run. So this way, when a recession hits, they'll have some ammunition to kind of lower the interest rate gradually and not immediately go to zero like we saw last time, um, the Fed likes to do things kind of on a gradual basis. And as rates normalize, right now they're still on the much lower end historically. As rates normalize, they'll have a little more ammunition to keep a stable economy, which is the ultimate goal of this. Absolutely. All right. So we will turn to the specific investing takeaways in just a moment. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. All right, so Matt, we've given the general gist of things and the lay of the land and kind of the Fed's perspective. So let's talk a little bit about the key takeaways for investors. Now that we've given all of this information, let's try and distill it down. And of course, the first thing that bears mentioning is an expanding economy is generally good for just about everybody stocks wise. But there are going to still be winners, disproportionate winners, let's say, and also some potential losers. So let's talk a little bit about disproportionate winners first. 
Yeah, um, the biggest disproportionate winner is banks that you know make their money off of interest rates. That's the whole reason they're there. Um, generally speaking, banks. It's the business. If you if you heard our three part series on banks earlier in the year, it's a little more complicated. But the general idea is that banks take in deposits at low interest rates and loan out money at higher interest rates. The difference between them is known as the net interest margin. This is the profit margin in the banking world. As interest rates rise, the rates that banks pay out rise as well generally, and the, the rates that they charge con consumers for loans tend to rise as well. But the rates that they're charging on loans tend to rise a little bit faster than the rates that they're paying out on deposits. If you have a savings account, you notice that your interest rate probably has not gone up by you know 150 basis points in the current rate hike cycle. So this results in what's called margin expansion, where banks' profit margins get a little bit bigger as interest rates get higher, which we've already started to see over the past few years in a lot of the major banks. And, in fact, Bank of America's CFO noted on their most recent quarterly call that, quote, with respect to asset sensitivity as of 1231, an instantaneous 100 basis point parallel increase in rates is estimated to increase net interest income, or NII as he called it, by $3.3 billion over the subsequent 12 months, end quote. So that's a big difference. And it's worth noting that, especially now that we're still near the bottom of the interest rate cycle, there is a lot of margin expansion potentially open to banks. Yeah, there's definitely some margin expansion that happens when interest rates are the lower end of the spectrum. You'll see this kind of taper off if things, if interest rates start to get a little bit on the high end, like 5% at the federal funds rate, like Michael just mentioned. But for the time being, we're still not close to what we would call a normal level of interest rates. So over the next few years, you should see margins expand significantly at most U.S. banks. Right. And interestingly, um, so just this morning when we were kind of talking through and prepping for the show, I pulled net interest margin from uh, S&P Market Intelligence for Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan. These are the big four banks. And looked at what net interest margin looks like in 2017 and what it looked like in 2006 before, obviously, the, the financial crisis. What's interesting is that in 2006, Bank of America and Wells Fargo had bigger net interest margins than they do today. That's not terribly surprising. That's kind of how that's supposed to work. But Citigroup and JP Morgan had smaller net interest margins than they do today. And given that, again, the there was a significantly higher federal funds rate, and we think a significantly higher federal funds rate will lead to net interest margin expansion, well, that doesn't really totally make sense. Now, of course, there are a few countervailing issues here, Matt, as you pointed out when we chatted about this. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, pretty much any comparison between a bank now and the same bank before the financial crisis happened is not a complete apples-to-apples apples comparison. Right. So... There are a lot of assets that were on bank balance sheets, especially institutions like Citigroup back then, that are no longer the case. So you really can't judge that too much. I'd say if you want to see the effects of margin expansion, look at banks that are more like a traditional savings and loan that did well during the financial crisis, Wells Fargo being one of them. Right. Um, you mentioned that Wells Fargo had a significantly higher net interest margin in 06 than they do today. So this is a case where you can really see the effects over time. Um, just keep in mind when you're looking at a 
pretty much any other any bank that had a tough time during the financial crisis that so you're not looking at the same bank 10 years ago. Right. And this is actually one of the interesting problems, if you will, when thinking about interest rate cycles is that they, they tend to run fairly long. And this one has run very long by historical standards. But um, what that means is that really getting an apples to apples comparison between any two uh, time periods can be somewhat difficult because this isn't the sort of thing where, you know, there's a massive change in interest rates in a year or two usually, and so it's really very difficult to see kind of from a historical perspective how these things work because so much has changed. I mean, think about how much the world has changed since 2006. Not even leaving aside the financial crisis, right? I mean, the first iPhone happened in 2007, right? So there, there just so many things have changed and shifted that it's really difficult to get a good historical perspective there. That said, Matt and I have talked, and we're going to dig into this a little bit more, and we're going to plan to have a, a deep dive episode on this at some point in the next couple of months, once we've really kind of cut through all the, the different components of this. And, and we think that's pretty exciting. So, thinking then about folks who might, well, let's say benefit less or even lose a little bit in a higher interest rate environment, there are a number of sectors and areas we can talk about here. Yeah, um, uh, real estate's definitely a big one. Um, I would call myself one of the losers here because I own a lot of real estate investment trusts. Um, but um, generally, anything that pays is an income-based investment. Think high-dividend stocks like REITs, think bonds, tend to do poorly when interest rates rise. The yields go up, um, which is kind of why the prices go down. Um, as interest rates rise, if you're buying bonds now or in the future, you could expect a higher yield on them. If you're holding bonds that you already bought you know, in the past, the value of those bonds will go down in order to make the yields rise. And the same holds true for, you know, dividend focused stocks like REITs, like I mentioned. Um, I, I can personally tell you that as rates have started to rise over the past couple of years, that my, the REITs in my portfolio have been the worst performers. So that I wouldn't expect anything different over the next few years. Although I still love them as long-term investments. So I'm not, <laughs> they're not going anywhere. Right. Yeah. My my the read part of my portfolio has not been the worst performing part of my portfolio, but that's because I've I've bought some real duds over the years <laughs> that have not been reads, but have been other companies <laughs> that have really struggled. Every investor has their stories of stocks that have, let's just say, not gone quite as they predicted, and I certainly have my fair share of them. But this is an important point for us to note and to to really consider, which is that as bond yields go up. We can probably expect some income investors, perhaps some of our listeners even, to think about, well, okay, sure, I could be in this dividend aristocrat, this very, very comparatively safe dividend stock, which is paying, say, a 2 or a 3% yield, or I can be in this bond that's paying 4 5 maybe even 6%, depending on how things go with interest rates. And that could really make for this interesting trade-off where it's like, well... You know, I'd really rather get the income. One of the reasons so many retirees and income-focused investors have been in dividend stocks has been because bond yields have been so low for so long. As that shifts, it really could have some big implications for, broadly speaking, the dividend sector. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'll be honest. If if I saw a pretty safe bond that was yielding six to seven percent. I'd have to think twice about taking the risk on a certain stock I was looking at. So this is you could you could definitely see this with pressure on on income investments, stocks and bonds. 
over the next few years. Right. Of course, that assumes that the Fed continues raising rates and that bond yields continue to improve, et cetera, et cetera. And as I mentioned earlier, predicting the future, not something people are really terribly good at. So so we are not (laughs) planning to predict the future here, but this is certainly a possible outcome. And there's a lot to think about. But broadly speaking, if you've got some banks on your watch list, now's a pretty good time to take a closer look at them because, frankly, this sector looks poised to have a really, really good few years, assuming the Fed's predictions and planned actions continue to hold. Definitely. And don't forget about the uh, potential banking reforms we talked about last week. Right. Yeah. Another potentially big benefit, particularly to some of your mid-sized banks. All right, folks, that's it for this week's financial show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocus@fool.com. As always, people in the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.